Hey, what's up and welcome back storytellers. If you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your huge wins for the week, recommendations for books and TV shows, and there's a whole ton of gifs in there. So if you have a smile on your face right now, just from listening to that, you need to come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Now about our podcast episodes, if you are enjoying our show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but your reviews also give new listeners a glimpse of what to expect from our episodes. The more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow those new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time and thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who already left a review. And on that note, I want to shout out Megan Rianne who wrote us a review that said, this podcast is by far my favorite. It's an amazing source of knowledge from diverse authors and perspectives and I cannot express enough how insightful and motivational the interviews are. It's the perfect thing to listen to on your commute or while you're preparing yourself for a writing session. Now go listen. Megan, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to write this thoughtful review. I so appreciate you and it's an honor to be a part of your day. Now on to today's conversation, we have Marissa Meyer, the number one New York Times bestselling author of Renegades, Arch Enemies, Heartless, The Lunar Chronicles, and her newly released Supernova, the final book in her Renegade series. In our conversation, Marissa shares how she intuitively navigates the business side of the publishing world while also giving us a snapshot of her inspiring writing and querying process for her novel, Cinder. If you're about to jump into the querying trenches, you definitely do not want to miss this part of the conversation. We then chat about support systems and their important role in our creative pursuits, why it's so crucial to carve out time for fun in our writing process, and how diverse representation in children's literacy is helping to change negative stigmas. Further into our conversation, we chat about the Lunar Chronicles series, how she transitions from one popular series to another, and how to balance crafting rich worlds and character development. Storytellers, be sure to check out the writing prompt that Marissa created just for our community. To download it, head over to our show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Marissa dash Meyer. Now let's dive right in. Listeners, I am so excited. Guess what? We have one of your most requested guests on the podcast today. We have Marissa Meyer with us today. Marissa, how are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I am so good. So why don't we trace back to your earliest memories of when you first fell in love with storytelling? Oh gosh, so, (laughs) so long ago. My absolute earliest memory was I was three years old. And I had a story in my head. And so I convinced my mom to type it up for me on our just absolutely ancient computer. I don't know how old you are, but some of your listeners might remember the computers that like was only a black screen with green text. And that's all they could do. (laughs) Yeah. And my mom typed up this story for me that I, I told to her and it was called Rosie and the Rosebush. 
And it was about a little girl named Rosie who one day tumbled into this magical rose bush and ended up in this kind of fantasy world and got to play with all the magical rose creatures. And then my mom printed it out for me and I got to illustrate the pages, but I remember getting really sick of drawing roses after it. <laughs> okay. I'm very curious because you're at such a young age. Where do you think you got that creativity from? Were you reading and absorbing yourself a lot of books? Some of my most darling childhood memories were snuggling up to my mom, you know, me and my brother at bedtime and her reading stories to us. And I just loved that. I loved being read to. I don't know how old I was exactly when I started being able to read myself, but as soon as I could, I just devoured books. I couldn't get enough of them. Where were you born and raised? Tacoma, Washington. Ooh, okay. So you're still living there. I still live here. No, I have not gone far at all. <laughs> oh my, so you've never moved out of Washington or have you? And then you came back? No, no. I've been here my whole life. <gasps> I even went to college here, oh um, which is so unusual. I know everybody just moves around so much these days, but you know, this is home to me. And it's funny that when I first started traveling a lot and like going on book tours and seeing more of the country and more of the world, I was actually really afraid that I would go somewhere and completely fall in love with it and be like, oh no, now I have to move here. But that hasn't happened. I feel like the more of the world that I see, the more that Tacoma um, and this Pacific Northwest area just feels like it's where I belong. Oh my God, I'm so jealous of all of your nature that you have. Yeah, and we got mountains and the ocean and the forests. And no, it is a really beautiful part of the country. Oh my gosh. Okay, so when you grew up in Tacoma, Washington, your whole life, I just always feel like certain environments sometimes are more conducive for creativity. Others are not as much. For yours, do you feel like it was a pretty creative environment, neighborhood that you grew up in? Was this something that was very much encouraged or was it more of a, hey, we're going to gear you up for the nine to five career? You know, that's a great question. I don't know that I feel like the educational system was necessarily pushing kids on a more creative path. But I agree with you that there are do just seem to be some environments that encourage more creativity. For me, I know I love to write when it's pouring down rain outside as opposed to like, oh, when it's a beautiful, warm, sunny days, I feel guilty staying inside and writing. I feel like, oh, I should be outside enjoying the sun. And so I, I often wonder if that's part of it, that because we do have such so many, you know, kind of dark, overcast, cloudy, gray days, if that just makes people want to, to hunker down inside with a, a book and a story and just enjoy it. When you were younger, it was clear how much you loved storytelling, how much it was a part of your upbringing. But something I find really interesting with many authors, they never thought it was possible to be an author growing up as an actual viable career. Was that something that you were super aware of since you were young or it wasn't until like high school, college or like young adult life? That's such a good question because I, I know exactly what you're saying about that. You know, when you're growing up and you love books so much, I mean, they're almost like these magical portals. And it's like, how could anybody create this? Like for me, as soon as I realized that it was a job, like I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I felt really, really strongly that this is what I was called to do. But you start to hear so much about how it's so competitive and it's so difficult and you know, as soon as you start researching the querying process, oh, less than 1% of queries, you know, even get looked at by the agent, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just these horrible statistics. And so even though I knew that I wanted to be a writer, 
I definitely went the majority of my childhood and adolescence feeling like, you know, okay, I'm going to do everything in my power to make this dream come true. But I would not say that at any point I felt like it was a given. Like I knew that it was going to be really difficult. So when you went to college, what were you studying? I have a bachelor's in creative writing with minors in children's literature. It's interesting, actually, because after I got that degree and I started working at a small publishing house in Seattle um, as an editor. And at that point, I mean, I'm still writing. I'm still having this dream of wanting to be a writer. But I did kind of go through a period where it felt like so unlikely, you know, so many people fail at this dream. And so I kind of came up with a plan B because I loved working with books. I loved being an editor. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get my master's degree in publishing. And that way, no matter what happens with the writing thing, I'm still going to be surrounded by books and I'm still going to have a hand in books somehow. And so I did go and get my master's degree in publishing. But while I was getting that degree, I just have such clear memories of every time we would talk about the author, whether it's, you know, the author's job in promotion or the author editor relationship or whatever it was, I would just have such a strong feeling that I want to be the author in this situation. I don't want to be the editor. I don't want to be the publicist. I want to be the author. And so even though I got that degree intending it as my plan B, I feel like that more than anything pushed me to really pursuing writing. And like, I have to find a way to make this happen. Wow. That's really inspiring. And also I cannot help because you just opened up Pandora's box. When you, you have all this knowledge, getting your master's in publishing, how do you think that then affected or impacted your writing? Just knowing exactly what, what people are looking for when you're trying to sell books. Yeah, I definitely think that it was helpful Maybe not so much on a craft level, but certainly with the business side of things, especially as I, you know, did get an agent and and did get a book deal, just knowing what to expect and knowing what questions to ask and how the whole process works. I don't know that it made me more successful necessarily, but I feel like it helped me kind of tame my stress levels. I I wasn't freaked out all the time about not knowing what was going on. And it can be a really stressful period that when from when your book sells to when it comes out, you just don't know what to expect for a lot of authors. Whereas I had a really clear idea of what was going on behind the scenes. And even if I didn't hear from my editor for six months, I knew that that was normal. I knew that that didn't mean they hated me. I just assume that maybe in publishing worlds, like you guys can spot what kind of stories that will do well in the market that may be something that you would have gravitated towards anyways. And then realizing, oh, there's a readership that's eager and waiting for wanting to read more about this specific topic. You know, almost like there was that time about vampires and then moving over (laughs) to like werewolves or things like that. So was it anything in uh, leaning towards that or nothing like that at all? Nothing like that at all. And that's not to say that it it couldn't happen. And, you know, quite possibly there are people who work in the industry who have been able to see that and pick up on those trends. But I feel like if as soon as you start writing to a trend, then by the time your book is coming out, that trend is long gone. That is so true. So you might as well write something that you love writing about. Exactly. And I also feel like 
even if you are an editor, and I should say that when I was an editor, the books that I worked were on were fine art books for museums. I was not fiction editing. So that in itself didn't really play a part. (laughs) Okay. But I know people who work in publishing and also write, and it's impossible, you know, you can maybe be really good at picking up on good stories or picking up on good writing that does not necessarily translate to your own craft. Like we all have blinders on. It's so impossible to know if you've done something good, if you've done something worthwhile, how will readers respond to it? And I just don't think that you may be the best agent able to pick up on really great, strong queries. That does not necessarily mean that you're going to be able to write one depicting your own story. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That's such a good point. I am going to circle back because um, when you mentioned the querying a little bit just now, so were you researching this, like querying and trying to get an agent? Where was the internet at that time? Like, was it, because I know there's a lot of resources right now. We even have resources on our website about what literary agents are looking for. We have literary agents who give us bonus downloadables for their episodes Mm -hmm. to show exactly what kind of query letters they want. But back then... I heard that it was like pretty difficult to find information that was so actionable. So what was that like for you at the time when you did start looking for an agent for the first time ever? When I was looking for an agent, it would have been 2011. And certainly by that point, I think that there were a fair amount of resources. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading through the archives of, was it Agent Shark? Oh, was it Query Shark or something? Query Shark, Query Shark. Yes, everyone talks about them, yes. Yeah, and reading all of the different agent blogs and all of that, and they were super helpful. And I really threw myself into that research and wanted to give this book the best possible chance So I feel like when I was querying, there were a fair amount of resources, but I can't imagine, you know, trying to get published, you know, 30 years ago without the internet and having Mm. to actually print out your whole manuscript and nails off. Nope. (laughs) Where it goes into the universe. Oh, that would just be horrifying. Yeah, that would kill me, honestly. And also not know, like if they were like, hey, we never received it. And you don't find out till months later. It's like, wait, what just happened? You know? So, I mean, that's just the crazy thing. I mean, when you are querying, right, there's so many people that say they end up waiting and just overall talking about time as well. People have waited for a very long time to hear a response. How, what was your experience like? Yeah, no, it's just, this is not going to help anybody. <laughs> um, I am one of the few lucky ones where I actually had a really short query process. So from the time that I started sending out queries on Cinder, which was my first novel, It was about two months before I signed with an agent, and that turned out to be the first agent that I had sent a query letter to. And then she and I worked on the manuscript for maybe about two weeks. Like There wasn't a whole lot to be done on it, just a few minor revisions. And then she took the manuscript out to editors on a Friday, and we had our first offer on Monday. I don't remember exactly what the timeline was at that point, but we did end up having interest from three different publishers and then two of them ended up going to auction. So it took a few weeks before we had a a final offer and and knew who my publisher was going to be. So, Oh my gosh. Well, very belated. Congratulations, because that is huge. (laughs) And it's just especially getting to talk with a lot of authors and hearing everybody's different approach, different stories, like different timelines, especially. It's funny because I, again, I mean, coming from a publishing background, 
I knew about the weight. I knew that it could be radio silence for months and months. I knew that this book might not sell. You know, I might have to go back to the drawing board and try with the next manuscript and try with the next manuscript. And I felt like I was really emotionally prepared for that. And there was a little bit of it then being like, oh, nope, just kidding. Here you go. Here's a book deal. Wow. Like, oh, it's not at all what I was prepared for. But this is so nice for people to hear that truly anything is possible. It's very, very rare for this to happen. But it can be possible and you made it possible. So congrats. And I'm so happy that you were able to share that with us. Thank you for breaking down the timeline. I think it's always so nice just to see that it's not always just one path. Right. The whole point is that everybody has a different path. Your time will come when it comes. That's absolutely true. I also want to talk about more of the emotional side of the writing process. When you're writing this, where are you in life? When you're writing Cinder, your first idea what was happening? What was it like trying to make time for writing? Were you just specifically focusing on writing? Like, where were you in your overall life? Yeah, so it took me about two years to write and revise Cinder. So for the majority of that, I was working as an editor. For the first portion, I was also getting my master's degree. And so there was a just a lot of balancing. You know, you, you have to work. You're going to school. I had a boyfriend who is now my husband. You know, so there's life and, and you have to take care of life. But I also had this very huge passion. I loved to write. I, I always thought it was fun. I mean, it was a hobby long before it was a job. Plus, I wanted to be a professional writer. So you you find ways to make time. There were, for many months while I was aspiring, my husband and I would, you know, get up at five o'clock in the morning so that I could write for an hour before I had to go off to work. Or I would carve out a Saturday afternoon and go to the cafe and write. I would often bring my laptop on my commute. I rode the bus for an hour to and from Seattle each day. So I would write on the bus. You know, you find ways to, to work it into your life to make it happen inspiring as heck. And when you're talking about your husband getting up at 5 a.m. as well, what do you mean by that? Was he also going to work shortly after? Or was he just getting up for moral support? So he was self-employed at the time as a contractor. And so he did not have to get up with me, but he would. He would get up first and make the coffee so that I <gasps> I woke up, I would have a cup of coffee ready for me. And, oh. Yeah. And that's why I married. <laughs> Having that support from a significant other is huge and just makes the entire journey so much better. But then also like if you're, you have these periods of your life where you're very busy or your partner is very busy and being able to steal those little quiet moments where you can just yes. be in each other's presence before the chaos yes. of the day or yes. at the end of a day. I mean, if it works better, you know, to, to snuggle on the couch, you know, and with a movie on the weekend yes. or whatever it is, but you have to find those times to, to just be together. Yes. A thousand percent, because that's what we do here at home too. And we'll sneak in like early morning dance breaks. There's this whole dance party in the morning. That's like totally like no drugs, no drinking, nothing like that allowed only like kombucha and like morning snack bites. <laughs> We're like, yep, definitely. We definitely reached <laughs> over thirties for sure. We love it. We'll get up at 5am just to go dancing. Cause that's our way of bonding and exercising in the morning and like having a really healthy dose of energy and going to work right after feeling really good about yourself. And also 
feeling like you had a date night except swapped for daytime. You could actually stay awake and not like fall asleep by 10. So, and it's great because I'm sure, you know, with your husband, I'm sure there are times where you switch, you get up and make him things to support him. And like my girlfriend, she's like, we are truly so lucky, both of us, to have those people, our person by our sides to be so supportive and to be there and to actually show support through action as well is a lot. You know what I mean? It's like not everybody has that. I feel like I found my Prince Charming 100%. You know, I can't imagine life without him. I'm so happy for you both. Okay, I will totally get sidetracked because don't get me started on lovey-dovey things because I will go on because I love stories like these. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now let's reroute back and more about your writing. Thank you so much for opening up and letting us know about your personal life. I love that. Um, and know how you balance your your love life and make time for each other is just truly so inspiring. That's part of being a human and also does weave into our storytelling skills, I think as well, because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're happier as creative people. And that means all facets of life, including relationships, you know, whether with family, a significant other or children, whoever, I I think it really helps us produce better and have more clarity as artists and and whatever it is that we want to write. I agree 100%. I'm so glad you said that. I feel Mm -hmm. like that doesn't get talked about. Yes. I think that's the thing. Like so many people are amazing at talking about craft. I mean, I'll be honest, first one to admit that I am, I try to ask what I can, but I'm not personally like a published writer at all. So I don't know all the craft questions or craft things to talk about. But what I always love talking about and what I'm very, very excited to talk about is life stuff. And, you know, sometimes I'm a little like hesitant to use the word balancing because in a way it's like, you just got to do it. You just have to do it. There is no choice in it. You know what I mean? So it's very Mm -hmm. much, you've got to make it a part of your whole system as a creative person to be healthy in all aspects, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, all of that. I agree. And I think that in the long run, like you say, we produce better. I feel like I'm more creative when I'm relaxed and happy, when I'm enjoying my life, you know, and of course there are those periods where whether you're under a tight deadline and there's a lot of anxiety and stress, but by and large, I think that trying to find that balance in your life where, you know, writing is a a very big, important part of my life, but it's not my entire life and being able to also enjoy my family, being able to enjoy other hobbies, uh, you know, taking uh, healthy approaches to living. I think that it all comes back and all works together. And in the end, it makes my writing stronger. It makes me able to focus longer. I'm a really, really curious person. And I think a lot of writers are. I think that's part of what draws us to storytelling is that we are excited about life. We like to learn. We like to experience things. And so, you know, writing is just a a small portion of being kind of a a student of life. I mean, I'll I'll say yes to everything. I want to experience everything. I want to go everywhere. I love meeting new people, hearing other stories, you know, trying new skills and taking classes and all of that. I mean, I think it just makes life so much more rich and interesting. But like you say, it all becomes fodder. You just never, ever know what crazy, wacky thing you do is going to inspire a story or a character. And it could be 10 years later that you you know, are writing something and you think, oh, remember that a really interesting person that I met when I was taking that you know, cooking class or whatever. And you just never know what's going to come back and play a role in your writing. 
do you know if there are any conscious moments where you did connect something where you're like writing and you're like, oh my gosh. It happens all the time. Oh my gosh. Is there a favorite one that you could please share with us? Oh gosh. Probably the, I mean, the first one that came to mind as you were asking the question was many years ago, I took a one day trapeze flying class. What? <laughs> That's amazing. Because again, I will say yes to anything, even though it turned out to be horrible and I hated it. Oh no. <laughs> oh my God. I hope you were not injured. <laughs> oh no, I didn't hurt myself. It was really quite safe, but I was terrified. So when you do it, I mean, you have to climb this ladder up to this platform. You're really stinking high in the air. And then they bring the trapeze close to you, but you have to lean out to grab it to where you're, you can just about feel your center of gravity move. And you're like just about to fall before you can reach it and grab it. And it scared the heck out of me every single time. Oh my God. Um, however, years later, after that experience, <laughs> I ended up writing a character named Jest in my book, Heartless, who is a, a court jester. And there's the kind of one of the opening scenes when you first see him, he's like, swinging on this hoop over this ballroom. And there was something about that trapeze flying class that like inspired, I wanted to do a character who was a gymnast and who, you know, wasn't afraid of heights. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, I know that there was a definite connection there between that experience and Jess's character. Do you have a favorite book that you worked on? The one, you know, a lot of times I do feel like it's the ones that we we bled over the most, you know what I mean? The one you <laughs> gave most of your heart to. You pour your heart into so many of them. I mean, all of them really, they kind of leave with a piece of you when they go out into the world. I mean, I think Heartless to me feels like my best work. I don't know, in writing Heartless, I can't say that it was easy by any means, but I almost felt like I was channeling something like the story just grew beyond what I thought I was capable of writing when I first started it. And I ended up being just incredibly proud of, of what that book became. So, yeah, but even then, I mean, I don't know that I could say that it's my favorite, but, <laughs> but I certainly uh, think that it's it's possibly my best work to date. Incredible. Is Wasn't that such a mean question of me to ask? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Now so let's <laughs> talk about my children. Let me choose. I know, right? Like, as long as the children are not here, you better make sure your books are not in your room with you as we're <laughs> talking about this. But now with Heartless, do you think it's because you've written so many and you've developed, it's almost like practice that you've gotten to the point where you really know yourself and can tap into your understanding of putting together language? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that I get better. I mean, I think we all do. The more you write, the better writer you become. And so Heartless was, uh, I don't know, my seventh book maybe. And so definitely I think that I had grown as a writer over time by the time I was writing it. Because Heartless is the prequel to Alice in Wonderland. And in writing Heartless, I really was trying to pay homage to Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. And Lewis Carroll himself, he did so much wonderful wordplay and his books are just rich with, you know, poems and stories and little inside jokes and, you know, just this wonderful little hidden secrets that don't show up on the surface. I mean, so many people have now studied and 
you know, really delved deeply into his work and found all of these little hidden things that he put in there. And so when I was writing Heartless, not to say at all that I am putting myself on the same level as Lewis Carroll, but I wanted to try to capture that same sort of feel. And so I really thought a lot about, you know, the words and the language that I was using and trying to make it very rich and trying to, you know, put in little jokes and little hints of things uh, from the original books that, you know, 99% of readers are going to miss. But I hope that that 1%, you know, the really true Alice fans might pick up on them. And so I think that I was just very, very aware of what I was putting on every single page and, you know, trying to to push myself further than I had with my previous books. Oh, I love that. When you're doing this, do you have a trusted critique partners that you can lean on? Yeah, I do have one beta reader who has been with me for years. Actually, she and I met writing Sailor Moon fan fiction when we were teenagers. (laughs) So, So she and I have been critiquing each other's work for a long time. And so she, she's kind of my, my number one critiquer. I mean, I really, really trust her opinions and know that her commentary always helps me make it better. Even when it's something that I don't want to hear, of course, it's never fun to receive criticism, but her feedback just always points me in the right direction. And I just really trust her feedback. And then, of course, my editor also these days, you know, always has really great information as well. As far as like the specific, you know, did you pick up on this little hint or this joke? I really did not expect many people to. So they're little (laughs) Easter eggs for those who... They are little Easter eggs. You know, I, I just put them there in hopes that there might be that one reader of a thousand readers who who would read it and understand and be like, oh, wow, Marisha, she's a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I love that. I love those little clues. All right. Do you mind me interjecting super quick? Because I am curious, you know, you're talking about how your basically your number one go-to beta reader is your friend. There's so many listeners right now in our community where we have a private Facebook community and a lot of them find each other to become each other's beta readers and writing buddies. Can you please give any advice or suggestions on what you think makes a great partner? Like, you know, the way your friend, you said you love the way she gives you feedback and you trust the way she gives you feedback. What is it? Like, how does she specifically give you feedback that you really resonate with that you can then make the changes that are actually actionable and move you forward? Like just any hints for those listening who who want to become a better partner for those writers to help them along their journeys? First, I feel like I should give her a plug because her first middle grade novel is coming out here in this. Oh my God, congratulations. Yeah, I'm so happy for her. Um, Her name is Tamara Moss and her first book, Lin Tang and the Pirate Queen, will be out like in a couple of weeks, I think. Might even be out by the time this airs. So I hope your readers will check her out. I'm so happy and excited for her. But as far as critiquing what I love about Tamara and and the way that she gives me feedback is that she is not afraid to pull her punches. <laughs> you know, if there is something in the book that's not working or that she thinks could be stronger, she lets me know. And she's not mean about it, certainly. You know, there's no cruelty. And we both have the goal of making it the best book that we can. But whether it's a small detail, like, 
you know, I think that this sentence is really awkwardly worded or it's an entire, like you have this subplot that takes up a hundred pages of the book and is completely unnecessary. (laughs) Um, You know, whatever it is, she will tell me. However, she doesn't suggest how to fix it. And I think that's a really important thing for when you're critiquing someone. As the reader, you might have ideas for, you know, here's this problem. If you just did X, Y, and Z, it would fix the problem. That never works in the the mind of the writer. They will read your suggestion and think, oh, no, that wouldn't work because I have this other thing planned or that's not true to this character or whatever. So it's, it's not so much about telling the writer how to fix it. It's just saying something here isn't working. And then let the writer, you know, figure out what the solution is. And usually a lot of times just hearing that, you know, she picked up on something in the story immediately gets the wheels turning for me. You know, as soon as I read her feedback, I start getting new ideas and and my mind begins processing that and thinking, you know, yes, you're right. I see what you're saying. I think I have an idea for how to fix it. And so, yeah, it's, it just works. <laughs> oh, that's so helpful. Thank you so much for that. I actually learned some things there as well for myself because on 88 Cups of Tea, we publish essays and articles from authors. It goes through me before I hit the publish button. And I always try and learn to be as, you know, as respectful to the authors and writers as possible because I want to make sure that they still feel super confident about what they write, but I want to make sure it also reaches a certain level where before we hit the publish button. And that's something I always struggle with because it's like, I know for me, it's like I either get too harsh or I'm too nice. So I'm still trying to find that balance. You it know, is like, hard. It is- it's hard, girlfriend. Yes, it is. It is. It's like, so I try to learn to sandwich, like start off with what I love and what's amazing. And, you know, the voice is beautiful. So lyrical and all that stuff. But then it's like, okay, but over here, if you can like, kind of like, could we get a little bit more of this, your personal experience? Because I think that really draws in the readers to really fall in love with you as a human being, then end off with something positive as well. So yeah. thank you for those tips because I'm going to apply them as well well. Okay. So I would love to know if you're comfortable sharing a moment that you could remember that really was the darkest moment for you that you felt like you almost couldn't get through. And if you had one of those moments, could you walk us through it? And what was it that was able to pull you out of it? Hmm. It's a great question. I mean, I, I will be the first to say that I feel like I've led uh, a somewhat fairy tale life. Like I have not encountered a whole lot of difficulties in my life, a whole lot of struggles. But of course we all have, we all have days that are harder. Yeah. I was going to say also don't discount your sufferings either. You know, like you don't always have to compare to others because you know what you might see as rough, but then you feel bad comparing it to other people's rough. It's still considered a rough time. You know what I mean? Right. No, of course. So for me, I feel like possibly one of my saddest days, I grew up, I was in drama growing up. I loved acting. I did a lot of little theaters and had a lot of experience in drama. And then in, I think, 10th grade, my school was going to put on a Little Women performance And I, of course, love the story of Little Women and was so excited about it and went to the audition feeling really, really great because I I felt like I certainly have a lot of experience. I can totally rock one of these characters. 
However, I was also always one of the larger girls in school and really struggled with a lot of weight issues and, you know, was teased for my weight. And I went into that audition feeling really great about it and wanted to, of course, audition for one of the sisters. And before I could even begin, the teacher who was in charge of casting stopped me and said, you know, I see you're here to audition for one of the sisters. I'd like you to instead audition for the aunt character because you don't have the right body type to play one of <gasps> The fudge? Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I was of course shocked Holy and sh- devastated and didn't know what to say. So I did it. I read for the aunt character, no. knowing it from that very moment that I was not going to be a part of this show, even if I did get cast. And I just went home feeling horrible and awful and remember crying to my mother. And it was just so completely heartbroken about it. And of course, now as an adult, I can look back and think, you know, shame on that teacher. One for saying that, but even for having that mentality in the first place. The good thing, however, that's come out of this is that I am now working on a side project about a a curvy girl who really wants to be a character actor, um, a princess character actor at a theme park and the the struggles that she goes through. And that was very much inspired by that moment. So again, life, life inspires. It's all (laughs) Can we just take a moment, Marissa, and just acknowledge that that absolutely counts and I'm truly appalled that that happened. That is beyond bullying. That is a grown ass human being, excuse my language, who tore a kid apart at such impressionable age. No one should ever be talked to like that. And I am so sorry that happened to you. And I'm scared that that might've caused a lot of eating disorders for you growing up, or if it didn't, that it could have for any other kid. You know, certainly at that, that's, I mean, I did go through a period of, you know, yo-yo dieting and all of that. At this point in my life, I mean, that was, you know, 20 years ago. I feel like I've come to a point where I can make, you know, really healthy choices and choices Mm -hmm. that are about how I feel um, and how I want to feel as opposed to just, you know, my weight and the number on the scale. But it was hard. It's hard. It's hard for so many girls in our culture and our society to come to terms with that. I'm so happy for you with where you are at today. And like you were saying, making the healthier choices, that's not easy, right? That's not easy Mm -hmm. at all. I don't care what size anyone is, even the person who looks visually the skinniest person also struggles with that. So every single person can understand how difficult that is. So I need to commend you for that. And you are incredible. Okay. You are an inspiration. (laughs) Thank you. You have no idea how much it means to our community because they look up to you so much. And I know there are many who do struggle with eating disorders, who do have, you know, are going through really difficult times right now that have to do with image, how how they see themselves, okay? So what you said truly has helped them deeply. So thank you so much for that. And I think, of course, this day and age, too, you know, with the the diversity movement in children's literature, mm-hmm. and we want readers, you know, not only to look up to the authors, but we want readers to be able to see themselves in characters. And, you know, that's one thing that I think about more now as I write. Of course, I have a lot of books under my belt, but the more that I write, the more that I'm thinking about you know, writing characters that 
you know, more and more readers will be able to connect to. And, you know, not always writing about the the most beautiful girl or the most handsome boy. I mean, we all have so many different experiences and they're all valid and worth celebrating. So yeah, I think it's it's something that I'm so glad the writing community is embracing and, and has become so aware of the importance of it. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Marissa, do you mind? May I squeeze in maybe one to two questions out of the rest of them? And so we'll get you out of here. So there's uh, something we've been playing with is, you know, listeners, if they're comfortable, uh, they could leave voice messages or they could just text out the question they have. And there is one person that did leave a voice message. Her name is Christine Page, and I'm so excited to play it for you. When I heard that Marissa Meyer was going to be on 88 Cups of Tea, I was so excited. The Lunar Chronicles was one of my first YA series that I really loved. My questions are, what made you have the idea of twisting the stories of original fairy tales? And what made you choose the ones that you did for the Lunar Chronicles, i.e. Cinderella, Ride Riding Hood, Snow White, and Rapunzel? Yay! Thanks for calling in, Christine. That's so much fun. Okay, so yeah, what gave me the idea to twist these fairy tales and give them a a sci-fi retelling? So it actually, I mentioned earlier that I used to write Sailor Moon fan fiction, and the idea for Cinder started with a fanfic that I wrote many years ago. And I, I actually wrote this story for a contest that was being hosted on a Sailor Moon website And you had to choose two things from this list that the moderators had created and include those two things in a short story. And so for for my two selections, I picked one to include a fairy tale character and two to set the story in the future. And I ended up writing this short story that was like a retelling of Puss in Boots but set in the future and it was with Sailor Moon characters and it was like this Sailor Moon, Puss in Boots, Star Wars mashup-y story. And it was so much fun to write and I loved it. And even as I was writing it, I started to think, you know, this is so cool combining this fairy tale and science fiction. And at that time, nobody had really done that before. And I just thought there's so much potential for this, these two genres, and maybe I could write a whole series of, of futuristic fairy tales. So that was that was the seed of the idea, and what would you know later grow into the Lunar Chronicles. As far as the the specific stories that I chose early early on, you know, once I'd had that idea that I wanted to write this series of sci-fi fairy tales. Pretty much the first thing that I did was make a list of some of my personal favorite fairy tales and just started brainstorming different ideas and different ways that I could, you know, futurize them and, and you know, combine them with these, these sci-fi tropes. And the ones that I ended up choosing were the ones that, for one, I felt like I had the best ideas for how they could be turned into this science fiction stories. But also from fairly early on, these four stories, I could begin to see how they would combine and how they would all work as one continuous plot. And from from really early brainstorming sessions, I knew that the Wicked Queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was going to be like the ultimate villain of the series. And I could begin to see ways that her 
you know, villainous dealings would have impacted the other characters from these other stories as well. And so, yeah, they just kind of all started to to blend and merge together and eventually became the Lunar Chronicles. Amazing. Brilliant. Okay. While we're talking about Lunar Chronicles, our other listener, Karis Rogerson, she wrote, I almost died of excitement when I woke up and saw the email that Marissa was going to be on the podcast. I love her. The Lunar Chronicles remains an all-time favorite series of mine, and the experience of reading it was the first time I realized reading could be a community event. And sometimes- Isn't that nice? I love that. I know, me too. And sometimes I still randomly think about Heartless three years after reading it and just want to cry. I'd love to know about Marissa's transition between one popular series to another, because I know that sometimes if you have one really popular series, it can be hard to find your groove writing different books, be they standalones or series. So I'd love to know maybe what factors Marissa thinks have gone into the success of her post Lunar Chronicles works. Oh gosh, it is so hard coming from the Lunar Chronicles and and all of the success of the Lunar Chronicles and then moving on to a new project. Obviously, I I love Heartless and Renegades, my newest series, and was super excited to write both of them, but it's impossible not to feel some fear and, you know, the pressure you want to please the readership. You want people to stay with you, to come on this new adventure. And it's it's a lot, it's a lot of voices <laughs> in your head um, when you're trying to move on to something new. But for me, I'm never writing for an audience. I'm trying to write a story that I, as a reader, would love and writing stories that I'm really excited about, writing characters that I think are really cool and really interesting and that I want to spend some time with. And then I just hope, I hope that they they find their readership and I hope that the readers, you know, love and enjoy them as much as I've enjoyed writing them. But I know that you're never going to please everyone. I know that there is no way for me to you know, like recreate the Lunar Chronicles, but now with different characters, like it's always going to be different and you're always going to lose some readers along the way. So as a writer, I think you just have to write what you're most excited for and just hope that it it works. Yes. Love that. Love that. Love that. Okay. So Marissa, we have several questions, but I wanted to squeeze in one more because I loved her question. Number one, you'll hear it's very detailed about craft, but also she wrote something that was quite funny in the beginning and I wanted you to hear it. So her name is Camille Leeds. She said, I love Marissa Myers so much. A lot of exclamation marks. She's one of my all-time favorite authors. And I would literally read a soup can label if she wrote it. (laughs) Oh my God, I thought that was hilarious. And she said, my question is, how is she able to balance crafting such rich settings while also concentrating on developing distinctive, memorable characters? Mm. So I try not to do both things at once. Um, I feel like different synapses are firing in my brain when I'm working on setting versus character. So generally for me, when I write the first draft of a book is very plot focused. I'm just trying to make sure I hit all of the important beats and that things are happening and that we go from point A to point B to point C and it all has some logical sense to it. And it's very plot focused. 
by the second draft of the book is when I feel like I'm now getting more comfortable with the characters. Um, I'm starting to understand them and their motivations better. And so the second draft of the book tends to be more character focused when I'm trying to, you know, find those things about each character that are interesting and fun and really bring them more to the surface and, you know, shine a light on, on each character. Then generally by the third draft is when I can start working in more details about the setting and bringing in more sensory details and coming up with, you know, interesting place names and working in the atmosphere and just trying to make it as as kind of lush and feel as real as possible so that when the reader reads it, I want them to feel like they're there. They're standing in that room or they're standing in that city alleyway or whatever it is. But I'm not generally thinking about that so much in the first couple of drafts. I want to make sure that the plot is set, that the characters are interesting, and then like really bring all of that setting to life in getting toward the end of the writing process. Incredible. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much, Marissa. Just want to let you know, I'll say it again. I know I said it earlier, but our community is so excited. You're on the podcast. Like some of them even wrote in, oh my God, I just peed a little when they found out that you were going to be on the pod. I thought it was hilarious. It was hilarious. That was by Jessica Lemons. She's so funny. She's a listener in our community who's very, very uh, supportive of our podcast. And someone else also, Brenna Cunningham said, she's like, I think I just died. I just finished reading her books and I cannot wait to start her new series. So I'm just letting you know, like truly how much they love you. So I just had to share that. I thought it was hilarious the way they were writing it. Let me wrap up with two of my questions, super quick ones. Tell us what books we should check out. Yeah. Okay. So for craft books, the number one book that helped me the most when I was getting started was Plot and Structure by James Scott Bell, because he does just such a phenomenal job of really breaking down the major points of story and how you can take these, you know, quote unquote rules and you can break them when it needs to be broken, but how you can follow the guidelines without making it feel, you know, like you're just following the plot structure. (laughs) It makes a lot of logical sense, but also leaves so much room for imagination and and creativity and giving your own spin to it. And I, I just really love that book as a craft guide. As far as a fiction book, For me, one of the most recent books that I, or series that I've read that just blew me away was Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor. And Lainey is that very rare writer that both has incredible plot and suspense and pacing and, you know, dynamic characters, but also just the most lush, beautiful, lyrical prose. She somehow manages to do both. Oh, she's one of those. <laughs> she's one of those. And I hate her. <laughs> but I love her because she's so good. Every time I read anything by Lainey Taylor, I think, okay, this is what something to aspire toward. This is going to help me be better. Oh, wow. Yeah. So highly recommended. Amazing. Okay. Our show notes manager, Rachel, is going to link all those up in your show notes page just so it's easier for our listeners to find it and click on it. Now, last question. What are you most excited about that you're working on right now that you can share with us? I'm so excited about so many things. <laughs> of course, I can't share all of them with you, but the things that I can share, the third and final book of the Renegades trilogy, which is Supernova, is coming out in like three weeks. <gasps> I think the date is November 5th. 
Oh my God. Okay. So when this releases, it'll be out. Okay. Go get it. Go get it. Final Cushion. So yes, that's happening. And then my next book, which will be out fall 2020, is called Instant Karma. It is my first foray into contemporary romance about a teenage girl who kind of magically develops the ability to exact instant karma on people and how she she uses it to try to punish the people of her school and her community that she believes deserve punishment, but how it always backfires when she tries to punish a certain boy. Oh, that's not, were you doing some research about Buddhism as well with the whole karma? Because I'm Buddhist. I grew up Buddhist and oh, karma okay. is a he- trust. Every day I'm hearing from my mom, yeah. you better not do that. It's bad karma. I'm like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> you know, in the story, I'm by and large trying to stay away from religion, the story, but I have researched it just for background knowledge. I'm so excited. I'm super pumped about that. I'm so thrilled for you. And I know our community is going to come out and support you. Where can everybody find you online if they're not already following you? Um, And also to keep tabs on all your updates and eventually in the future, the near future, the tour dates and all of that. Yeah. So I uh, suggest following me on Instagram tends to be where I'm most active. And that's at Marissa Meyer author. And that wraps up my conversation with Marissa Meyer. Marissa, thank you so much for your words of wisdom. I loved chatting with you. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Marissa on Twitter at Marissa underscore Meyer or on Instagram at Marissa Meyer author. To download Marissa's writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Marissa's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Marissa dash Meyer. If you'd love more 88 Cups of Tea content that'll motivate you and warm your heart, be sure to read our articles and essays on 88cupsoftea.com. We are so proud to publish pieces by authors like Shannon Messenger, Sarah Faring, Annie Sullivan, Brittany Morris, Taylor K. Mejia, J.C. Cervantes, and many more of your favorite authors. To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, make sure you're following us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with posting favorite quotes from our content. And my favorite part about Instagram is our Instagram story takeovers from some of your favorite guests that have been on the show. So make sure you head over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to join in on the fun. Have a super productive week and I will catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.